I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you dwell therein. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if you be unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a great stone and he set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was July 20th, 1969, that Apollo 11 landed. And Commander Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would be the first two men to walk on the moon, while Michael Collins was serving as the command module pilot, and he was orbiting above, waiting for their return and their rendezvous. They were fulfilling the challenge that had been established by President Kennedy a few years before to send men to the moon and bring them safely home again. When these three astronauts were able to safely return home, they would spend three weeks in quarantine before finally being able to go back to their families and their lives. For Buzz Aldrin, it was a difficult transition. How do you top going to the moon? How do you come back from an experience like that? In his book, The Magnificent Desolation, Buzz Aldrin describes it this way. How could I have gone almost overnight from being on top of the world to feeling useless, worthless, and washed up? I wanted to resume my duties, but there were no duties to resume. There was no goal, no sense of calling, no project worth pouring myself into. Although I didn't realize it at the time, I had started drinking more. Life seemed to have lost its luster. On some days, I couldn't even find a reason to get out of bed. Now, you can imagine that anyone who has had the opportunity to go to the moon can ask the question, what next? I made it here, now what? It's not just something as extraordinary as going to the moon that can warrant that question, though. We can ask what now after many different things, 
And it can be debilitating if we don't have an answer. It was not too long ago that I was watching a video where a man asked the question, I just retired from being a corporate executive. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? We've all been to high school graduations where the graduates and many of their parents were asking the question, what now? We've all asked that question of ourselves at different times. We need goals. We need challenges in life to spur us forward. We need things that inspire us. We need to be about things that make a difference. We need to have a dream in life that's worthy We need to be dreaming the things that God dreams of. When Apollo 11 left the moon, they left behind a plaque that read, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969. We came in peace for all mankind. We came in peace for all mankind. Now think of the time that this was all taking place, the context, the setting of this, that the moon race was going on during the Cold War, the Vietnam War, during the civil rights struggle, during the assassinations of President Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. What the world needed most was not the novelty of somebody walking on the moon, but rather A challenge and a goal so big, so demanding, that everybody could rally behind it and be blessed because of it. Today we're concluding our sermon series, Do the Hard Thing. For the past three weeks, Dr. Long has been talking about us living as the family of faith, our doing the hard thing. We're on a journey Sometimes we'll need to face our mistakes. Sometimes we'll need to change course when necessary to achieve the goal. It was 52 years ago this month that President Kennedy went to Rice University and gave that wonderful speech. In it, he said, We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won. And they must be won and used for the progress of all people. He went on to say, Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who climbed Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said, Because it is there. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail... We ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Throughout the series, we've seen that the Hebrew people were called to embark on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure of their history to that point. They had been set free from captivity They escaped out of Egypt, and now in today's reading, Joshua gathers the people together now in the promised land, and he reminds them of the dream. The dream wasn't being free from slavery. The dream wasn't even getting to the promised land. The dream was living in freedom as the people of God, to serve God and serve others. They forgot at different points in their journey to ask the question, what next? In the book, Work in Progress, 
Michael Eisner tells a what next story. He says it was 1987 and he was at Disneyland and he was there to celebrate the opening of the new Star Wars attraction with George Lucas. It was the Star Tours ride and there were lots of celebrities there and and they ate dinner together afterwards and among the group there was Gina Yeager and Dick Rutan. Now this was a couple who had just a month before flown all around the world in a single engine plane without stopping on a single tank of gas. It was an incredible feat. And at one point during the dinner, Michael Eisner's wife leans over to them and asks them the question, you've done this incredible flight, the most adventurous thing imaginable. What are you going to do next? In a very innocent and kind of uh, sincere way, they said, well, we're going to Disneyland. (laughs) And Michael Eisner's wife, as soon as she could, pulled him aside and she told him what had happened and she said, this would make a great advertising campaign. And so just two weeks later, at the Super Bowl, the New York Giants beat the Denver Broncos. And at the end of the game, the Giants quarterback walked over to the Disney camera crew and they asked him the question, Phil Simms, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And he said, I'm going to Disney World. That was the first of the what are you going to do next commercials. And since then, we've seen Eli Manning and Drew Brees and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and and a whole host of them throughout the years. It's been one of the most successful and recognizable advertising campaigns. But it also reminds us of a question that can loom large in our lives. What are you going to do next? There are three things that we can talk about this morning that can help us answer that question as we find joy in the wilderness and we find the strength to embark on the next hard journey. The first that we need to remember is to enjoy the journey. As we've seen throughout these weeks, it took the Hebrew people a while to find joy and gratitude in the wilderness. They had their sights set on their circumstances. They wanted to be set free, but as soon as any hardship would arise, they would become discouraged. When they were being pursued by the Egyptian army, when they came to the Red Sea, when they were in the wilderness and were running out of food and water, when they came to the promised land for the first time and they were too fearful to enter in, every one of those times they were so discouraged that they were ready to give up and choose slavery again. They wanted to be set free, just free from hardship. And that's not how the world operates. God had a bigger dream in mind for this people. God wanted them to learn how to live in freedom, how to find joy in the journey. Now, the wonderful thing is that joy and gratitude support one another. If you practice joy, you'll find that you're grateful. If you practice gratitude, you'll find joy. And when we have joy and gratitude in our lives that we're continually practicing, it helps us to focus on the right things. Rather than focusing on a set of circumstances that we may not control in this world, we can focus on who we are and who are the people that are with us for the journey. 
When Buzz Aldrin was appointed to the Apollo 11 mission, he was well on his way to achieving his dream of going to the moon. But then he found out that he wouldn't be the first on the moon. It would be Neil Armstrong. And so he went to his supervisors there at NASA, and he made the argument that it was more standard for him, a person in his position, to be the first one out. And they explained to him that the situation was that Armstrong would do it, and they turned him down. Now, the reality was that the hatch was on Armstrong's side. And so if Aldrin was going to be the first, it would have meant that he would have had to climb over Armstrong to get out, and that just didn't make any sense. And so Neil Armstrong was going to be the first man on the moon. Before Buzz Aldrin ever got to the moon, he made his dream about certain circumstances. When they arrived there, and and Buzz Aldrin was finally coming out to get on the moon, Neil Armstrong was there taking pictures of him. He took pictures of him coming out of the capsule, coming down the ladder, his first steps on the moon. He took pictures of him with the, the flag and that very famous picture where Buzz Aldrin, there's a huge expanse of the background behind him, and and Neil Armstrong is reflected in the visor on Buzz Aldrin's helmet. Then it was Buzz Aldrin's turn to have the camera. Now, it was normal for Neil Armstrong to take a lot more pictures. He was the one who was given the task of being the primary photographer, so he took lots and lots of pictures, but Buzz Aldrin took many pictures as well, just not quite as many as as Neil Armstrong. And he took pictures of the landscape and of rocks, and he took pictures of his own boots and his own footsteps. He just didn't take pictures of Neil Armstrong. Now, there was one where Buzz Aldrin was taking this panoramic view of the moon's landscape with the, the United States flag in the middle and Neil Armstrong just happened to be caught in the corner of the picture, kind of in the shadow of the spacecraft, kind of facing the other way. That was the only picture that Buzz Aldrin took of Neil Armstrong. He was asked about it when he returned home, and he said, I feel terrible about this. I just didn't think about it. There was so much going on and so little time to accomplish it. I just never considered taking pictures of Neil. And I think that's exactly the truth of the situation And probably the reason he struggled so much when he came back home. That quite literally, he didn't have his sights set on others. If we're to live this dream as the people of God, we're called to serve God and serve others. And that is how we find joy and gratitude in the journey. Second, we're called to remember the dreams of God. What are the things that God dreams of? What does God want for this world? Peace? Wholeness? If we look at the Gospel of John, it says that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. God is about salvation. Not in a strict, narrow sense, but in the broadest sense imaginable. God wants wholeness and peace and joy and purpose for all people. This is the dream, the passion of God, and this is our dream. It's important for us to remember this so we know what's next in our life. 
Remembrance is a strong theme throughout the Hebrew scripture. In fact, when the Hebrew people finally cross the Jordan River into the promised land, the Lord has them take 12 large stones from the middle of the river and take them across to establish a memorial, one of these stones for each tribe of Israel. And these stones would become kind of a historical mile marker so that anyone who would see them would ask the question, what do these mean? And they would remember the story that God delivered us from captivity and God delivered us from the Egyptian army and and through the Red Sea and provided for us in the wilderness and, and brought us safely through the Jordan River and into this promised land. They were called to remember. When Joshua gathered the people together in the speech that we heard this morning, he is calling them to remember what God has done for you. When we remember the dream of God in the past, it helps us to answer the question of what's next for our future. It was in 1965 that Walt Disney made the announcement of the Florida Project. Now, we now know it as Walt Disney World. It would open in 1971. Now, I want us to think about this timeline for just a moment. In 1965, the announcement's made. In 1966, Walt Disney would pass away. In 1967, they would begin construction on it. And in 1971, they would open with the Magic Kingdom. Now, this wasn't just a recreation of Disneyland in California. This was all that they had wanted to do in California, but couldn't because of space limitations. And so when they opened in 1971, they opened with this huge resort, the Magic Kingdom theme park, a lake, a campground, three different hotel resorts, as well as two golf courses and their own telephone and utility companies. They poured so much energy into this project. Now, this was the largest non-government hiring and construction project in the entire United States at the time. It was huge. But when they opened, they realized they had a significant problem with their employees. At the time, they had a turnover rate of 83%. Now, the national average for the service industry at that time was 55%. They had a turnover rate of 83%. They were only retaining 17% of their employees. Now, the operations grew quickly to a point where they needed 10,000 employees or cast members just to carry on operations. Now, think of the nightmare that that creates. You need 10,000 people just to keep the work going, and you're only able to retain 17%. They knew that there was a huge problem. They knew that their company as a whole was still grieving the loss of their leader, Walt Disney, from a few years before, and that shortly after opening the Magic Kingdom, their second leader, Roy Disney, would pass away. What had happened is that they had put so much energy and effort into opening the resort, and then they didn't answer the question, what are we going to do next? They gave everything just to arrive there, but they didn't have an answer of what to do afterwards. And so everyone is exhausted once the resort opened, and that's when the real work would begin. 
That first year of operations, they had over 11 million guests come into their park. And so the corporation really had to come back and, and help the employees answer the question, what are we going to do next? You know, when you have created the world's largest theme park resort, what are you going to do next? It's just not as exciting when you answer the question with, I'm going to work at Disney World. And yet that really was the answer. The leadership got together and reorganized their training program to help all of their cast members remember the dream of Walt Disney. The dream wasn't just getting to the point of opening the park. The dream was creating a place where everyone who came would have this incredible experience. The dream was they were called to serve their guests, to make a difference in the life of others. And that truly made all the difference in the world for their business and for the millions of people who would come to visit and for all the employees as well. They went from a retention rate of 17% to 72% because they had remembered their calling. We must remember what God calls us to do. It's how we find joy and strength to do the hard things ahead. And third, let's remember that God always has more in mind. It's fascinating to realize that today's scripture, Joshua's speech, comes after they've already entered into the promised land. Now think about it for a moment. Joshua has gathered the people together and he tells them, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that's a great rallying cry that sends the people forth across the Jordan River. Wouldn't that have been great, you know, inspiring speech to send them forth? But that's not what happened. This speech comes at the end of the book of Joshua, actually very near to his death. It's happening after they've already been living in the promised land. This is not the victory speech of we've made it. This is the answer to the question, what's next? When President Kennedy gave that speech at Rice University, he said, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Think of everything that went behind that dream. Think of how we were united as a nation and we understood that we had a price to pay. It was a huge cost. There were so many people involved in it. Over two million people were involved in one way or another to get people to the moon. We had to learn new technology and make new resources, all with less computing power than we have now. We understood that this goal to get men to the moon was worth it. And when we did it, we all celebrated. We were all there together. And then we didn't have an answer for the question, what next? We haven't rallied around a new dream. We haven't unified over some difficult project. In fact, today, we really discourage people from doing anything that's hazardous or dangerous, an adventure. Now, certainly, we don't want to encourage people to have a wanton disregard for safety, but it really is unhealthy for a society to never risk anything to do the hard things that make a difference, to never have adventures anymore. 
We can't let that happen to us as the family of faith. We ask the question, do we have worthy dreams? Are we serving and living as the people of God? What are we doing now that will make a difference in the world? In the book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life Here on Earth, Chris Hadfield talks about when he was reflecting on his career as an astronaut coming to an end. He said that, you know, I loved the applause and I loved all the attention, but I knew that the spotlight moves on and astronauts need to move on as well. Otherwise, they can be consumed by this feeling of self-importance or they can be overwhelmed with the fact that they'll never do anything as important again. His was a great book, had lots of insight. He said, I never uh, counted the dream as to walk in space. For me, the dream was always about making the most of my life here on earth. And I thought, that's God's dream for us, to make the most of our life here on earth for ourselves and for others. I want to read to you what Chris Hadfield said. Some people assume that after going to space, everyday life here on earth must seem mundane. But for me, the opposite has been true. Post-flight, I feel the way you might feel after a really interesting trip you've been planning and anticipating for years, fulfilled and energized, as well as inspired to see the world a little differently. A high-octane experience only enriches the rest of your life. Unless, of course, you are only able to experience joy at the very top of the ladder, in which case climbing down would be a big come down. Suddenly there's no more applause, and you're facing the stark reality of having to take out the trash and deal with the imperfections of daily life. The whole process of becoming an astronaut helped me understand what really matters. During the 11 years I was grounded, I loved my life. Of course I wanted to go back to space, who wouldn't? But I got real fulfillment and pleasure from small victories, like doing something well in the neutral buoyancy lab or figuring out how to fix something on my car. If I'd defined success very narrowly, limiting it to peak high visibility experiences, I would have felt very unsuccessful and unhappy. Life is just a whole lot better when you feel you're having 10 wins a day rather than a win every 10 years or so. The final mission to the moon was Apollo 17, and they left behind a plaque which read, Here man completed his first explorations of the moon, December 1972. May the spirit of peace in which we came be reflected in the lives of all mankind. Well, I think that the space program was not able to fully accomplish that. And so I think that falls to us as the family of faith, to live in such a way that the love of God would transform the world and that peace would be reflected in the lives of all people. It's not the easy thing. It's the hard thing. And we choose to do the hard thing because it disciplines us on how to learn and grow, how we're going to treat others, and helps us focus on how we're going to make a difference in the world. We are called to do this dream together so that the peace in which Christ came would be reflected in the lives of all of humanity. This is our dream. 
It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let all of us lift up our own silent prayers.